0: When I asked today's guest whether he'd be open to talking about some of the most challenging moments in his career, from facing ethical dilemmas to navigating failure to burning out, his answer was actually a resounding yes. Today's episode is a special one. I'm Tyler Finn, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Kahn, who's a partner at Protégé Church. Mark's had an incredible career, from working for a baseball team to to being legal counsel for tech companies like Yahoo, Evernote, WhatsApp, and Twilio. And now he's an executive recruiter helping companies hire the right diverse exec level talent, legal or otherwise. A common theme in his career trajectory seems to be change and perseverance. And for this episode, we're going to explore three core areas or moments of his life through this lens. Mark, we're really happy to have you here with us today. Thanks for agreeing to candidly discuss some difficult times in your career. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Tyler. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on and let me talk about, I guess, my favorite topic, which is me. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Anyways,
1: (laughs) uh, uh, that sounds a little weird, but whatever. It's good to be here and, and, and happy to go in any direction you want to take this conversation.
0: Before we start talking about WhatsApp and Segment and Twilio and and all the places that you ended up working Mark I'd like to go back to the very beginning of your career when you were deciding to become a lawyer tell us a little bit about the why what motivated you and how you actually went about becoming a lawyer
1: I graduated college in 1992 had a degree in computer science wasn't really into hardcore programming like there were people in my graduating class who would like go to the mainframe computers essentially and, and these uh, high-powered workstations and like just code for fun all night all weekend. That was not me, and so I decided I went and got a job. That used my computer science. But was not sort of hardcore. So I ended up working for this company that was you know, sort of like Ticketmaster, it was an event ticketing space. But this is what, you know, before internet ticketing or anything like that, you would go to, you know, music stores to buy your concert tickets and things like that. The Oakland A's ended up becoming a client of ours. They were looking for somebody to help them, you know, somebody who really knew the system inside and out to kind of help them run their season ticketing and all that. So I joined the Oakland A's to run the ticket operations. The president of the Oakland A's at the time was a guy named Sandy Alderson. Sandy, he was sort of an early mentor of mine. Uh, I remember a funny incident where he came into my office when the A's were talking about reacquiring Jose Canseco, and was like, "We're thinking of getting bringing Canseco back. What would that, what would that do to ticket sales?" I was like, "Oh God, I, I, how did I get here?" I was like, "I don't know. Probably like fifty thousand over the course of the season, something like Fifty thousand tickets, maybe. I don't know. Like he's like he's sort of a little washed at this point. It felt like, but he's still a big draw." I think it would help. Anyways, they ended up acquiring, reacquiring Conseco. Anyways, Sandy was a mentor of mine, and he's just a very smart, Harvard-trained lawyer. This is now sort of the mid '90s, '95, '96. Uh, the A's were not very good at that time. There had been an ownership change. I was starting to think about, okay, is this like it sort of my dream to work in baseball. But what I found was is like it was sort of like any other job. And it was and actually one of the yeah. one of the real downsides of it was is like I was like not enjoying going to baseball games. And that really bothered me.
0: It's like going to to the office. (laughs) Something like
1: that. And so I started to think about, well, I never really expected to go back to school, but I started thinking about like, uh, now you're starting to see some activity in tech. And I was like, well, what if I took this computer science degree and married it with a law degree? I think it would be really fun And I think it could really add a lot of value to tech companies if I, you know, sort of went in how, like, ultimately, the goal was to go be a tech company lawyer, whatever that meant. I didn't know what that meant at the time. I just, like, figured, hey, I could, like, I I understand technology. I'm versed in it. I figured there was something something to be done there, but I wasn't sure exactly what. And so I ended up applying to law school. And yeah, so 97 and then, you know, graduated in uh, 2000.
0: And that Played out for quite a while, right? You know, you went ended up making it in house and uh, had some had some success.
1: (laughs) I started nosing around, repositioned myself as a litigator. Even though I wanted to do tech trans, but I'm like, look, there's no tech trans market right now. Um, I'm like, oh, I'm a clerk in a district court, federal district court in Atlanta. Uh, We we wanted to come back out here. That was always the plan. I'm a litigator. Yay! Um, And so. I uh, ended up going to this boutique litigation firm in San Francisco called Roger Joseph O'Donnell. It was all of about 30 attorneys. Did a, a commercial litigation, government contracts, professional liability. We did a lot of like legal malpractice stuff. A lot of ex-big firm folks. So a lot of folks who'd been at the old Pettit Martin firm, which is long since gone. And it was great. It was great. I mean, I really enjoyed being at that firm. It was good people. I'm still friends with a number of folks. The Alan Joseph, who was the Joseph and Rogers Joseph. He passed away a number of years ago, but he and I were very, became very close. He came to my, like, actually the last place he was before he passed away of pancreatic cancer, the last like public event he was at was my son's bar mitzvah. So oh, uh, wow. like, it was a good place with good people and I enjoyed it. But I kind of knew that not really what I wanted to be doing. And I got a reach out about from a, a, an exec or a headhunter or a recruiter about going to a software company to basically go support their government contracts business. So I was doing a lot of government Mm -hmm. contract work. which was more of a DC practice. And so this was a, the company was business objects. So they were dual headquartered in San Jose and Paris. And so like they were looking for somebody to support the government business ideally out here and so like there weren't like like I was a little bit of a unicorn in that respect I, there weren't a lot of sort of people around my graduation time out in California to, who knew government contracts and so that's what I did I joined Business Objects to support their government business and then also did a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of commercial licensing transactions there
0: And you worked your way sort of up the up the in-house food chain from, you know, sort of one successive role to another. Tell us a little bit about that journey to I think what's going to be our first sort of break or topic, which is the time at WhatsApp.
1: Yeah. So the funny thing is about that business optics job, great company didn't really like the job. At all. Like it was like rinse and repeat. Like, how many times can I negotiate an indemnity? How many and and I wasn't I didn't feel like I was very good at it. It's really my first mm-hmm. bout with imposter syndrome. Cause I I had been raised as a litigator. I had never had that sort of transactional training. And so the litigation background was helpful, but it still like I to this day, I like I've never been super. I don't think I'm a very a very good contract drafter. I think I have other lawyer skills which are much better and more advanced than that. I was actually on the verge of going back to my law firm because I was like I was not happy. Then this event happened. It was sort of happenstance, and I've had this happen a few times, where the general counsel who was had come from IBM, he had been at the company for all of six months, comes into my office and he's like, or calls me down to his office more accurately, and says. Hey, I need to. I need you to help out on a project. I'm like, okay, you can't talk with anybody about it. Like, okay. Hmm. So he's like, you have you have access to all the contracts that the company has, right? I'm like, yeah, because I'm. And he knew I was working on this contract management. Uh, we were looking at contract management options and I was you know, spearheading that project. And he says, well, we've been approached about an acquisition and it looks like there's a reasonable chance it's gonna go forward. You and I are the only members of the legal department that know about this. And keep in mind, this was not a tiny legal department. My boss, there were two layers between me and the GC and neither my boss nor my boss's boss had any idea this was going on. Oh, wow. And so I spent the next month or so doing licensing deals by day and target side diligence by night and this was like like stocking a data room was not easy then because there was a lot of like the stuff the stuff was in a number of different places and just like the transferring and moving of documents and things like that was non-trivial i mean that's sort of the beginning of my involvement in the project and the whole and 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 it was ended up like doing diligence meetings around legal stuff. And just like it it ended up exploding. And I was like, so, oh, like it's not in-house I don't like. It was like, it's negotiating licensing deals that I don't like. In-house is actually pretty cool. I just need to find the right opportunity. Not long after the acquisition happens and I was like, well, okay. And about that time I got approached about a role, basically it was sort of like a product council type role at Palm, which was the old, you know, um, trio handspring Palm, of the, the uh, yeah, smartphone, I guess, you know, it, before Apple had, had launched iPhone, iPhone, and I got approached about basically coming over and supporting their engineering and product teams. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I was a Palm. I had Palm devices. I was like, I thought it was a great, great company. And this was in the middle of their reinvention. And so I went over there for two and a half years, fun job company ultimately ran into a lot of issues started to go down the toilet about that time there was an opportunity with yahoo to support their mobile products well now all of a sudden i have a lot of mobile experience went there Uh that was where i realized that okay not even if i'm in an interesting role like it's got to be the right size company for me and i'm realized at yahoo that i'm very much a startup guy i prefer startup environments so from there i became intentional about seeking out startup roles. I ended up being the second attorney at Evernote. And I get a call from Ann Hoagie. Ann was my boss at Yahoo. She had gone to NetApp after that. And then after NetApp, she had become the general counsel of WhatsApp. And she and I had been in touch. And I had, like I had been a, a reference for her when she joined WhatsApp. And she was six months into the job. And she's like, hey, um, I, I've been here for uh, six months. They've told me I can hire somebody. You were mm-hmm. my first thought. And I'm like, let me think about it, Ann. And so I thought about it over the weekend. And I'm like, I, you know, it it feels pretty lateral to me. Like I was yeah. a WhatsApp user, actually, because from I had just been to i just been in Beijing for, for Evernote. And I was like, I was, I was familiar with the product and got what they were doing. I had no idea of the scale and scope of sort of the reach of the of the product and the reach of the service. And so I said, Ann, you know. I think I'm going to take a pass, like really flattered, happy to, you know, sort of help you identify some other folks. And here's a couple of folks you might consider talking to. And she's like, okay, yep, totally get it. That makes sense. A week later, um, I'm making these dates up, but it was not long after the news comes out that WhatsApp is being acquired by Facebook. And so (laughs) I think to myself, huh, that might not have been the opportunity to reject out of hand. <laughs> and then I and then I started rationalizing. Well, wow, like I couldn't have, I couldn't have got. We wouldn't have gotten a deal done in a week. It was yeah. like way too short. There's no way I would have been hired. The funny thing is, is like I am ninety nine point nine. Actually, I'm hundred percent certain. Like Anne had no idea that the deal was about to happen because that thing came together so quickly. You know, I think she was just like, "I'm building the legal legal function here," and it just like the the coincidental timing. About a month passes by, and Anne calls me back and she's like, "Mark, I don't know if you heard, but about you know um, WhatsApp (laughs) being acquired by Facebook. You know, I'm not sure does does that change anything for you?" And I said, "I said, I don't know, Anne. Does it?" And she's like. Well, I think it might. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) you've got my attention. Let's talk. And so one thing led to another. It was actually, it took a while before it all came together, but I ended up joining WhatsApp in June of 2014. So the acquisition had gotten announced in February. It was President's Day weekend. I joined in June. We didn't know when the acquisition was going to close because there were some antitrust challenges and other regulatory challenges, particularly in Europe. And ultimately, it closed in, I think it was October. And so, yeah, I kind of joined in the mid. The company was about 40 people when I joined. So that's what got me to WhatsApp.
0: Tell us a little about what you expected it to be like going in, if you had any expectations at all, and then what it ended up being like working for what was still, you know, a super hot but small company within the behemoth, I guess you would sort of say, that is Facebook meta. Tell us about what what it was like before the before and after.
1: (laughs) That's a great question. It's sort of all a blur at this point. I think, like, I don't know that I had specific expectations going into it other than, like, I knew it was going to be a really dynamic environment in terms of, like, that was just going to be a lot of change. I would say, candidly, I had some loose concerns that like at some point it might get too big, depending on how, like there was a commitment sure. from Facebook's founder from Facebook's leadership to keep WhatsApp separate. And whatever separate mm-hmm. means. Like it was it was clear and they did live up to this. Like it was going to be, it wasn't just going to be immediately rolled up into Facebook and be sort of like disappear altogether. And and that's absolutely what happened. So you know, I ended up being there for three and a half years. We knew that the company was gonna grow. We knew it was gonna there was gonna be a Facebook overlay to it. I don't think I had any idea sort of how like I knew how that WhatsApp was much bigger internationally than it was in the US. I did not appreciate sort of how international my work was gonna be. I mean it's such, such such an interesting environment. Like contract negotiations were not something we were really doing. Like we were doing like our version of contract negotiations. Basically, we would, you know, we would do these one sheet deals. I mean, they were full on contracts, but they were like one sheet deals with telcos for preloading WhatsApp onto their products around the, their their phones around the world. And it was we had all the leverage, and so we would say, "Here are our terms, sign them." <laughs> oh, wait. oh, I'm sorry, we need to negotiate this. Okay, that's fine. We are now going to your number two because they will sign it. Right. I guarantee. So we had all the leverage. So we. We weren't spending a lot of time negotiating contracts. What I was spending a lot of time doing, and I had no idea, I never, didn't have any experience in this, was dealing with law enforcement and regulatory, not yet privacy, but like a lot of law enforcement and regulatory stuff, both in the US and around the world. The first time I got the, began to sort of appreciate what WhatsApp was like, because I did a trip to Brazil because Facebook had advised us like, look, people, people in Brazil but the, the, the people in Brazil love WhatsApp. The government, not so much. The law enforcement, not so much. And you guys, WhatsApp, you have a reputation of being sort of standoffish, which was accurate. Like, we were not really yeah. engaging with folks. We were fo- focused on building the product and scaling the service and, and all of that. And so, you know, Facebook was like, you, you really need to start engaging. Like, and we, we kind of begrudgingly did that. So my first trip, I take a trip down to Brazil. I go, I'm in Sao Paulo. I am at Facebook's outside counsel. And then we had our own counsel because we were still quite separate. This was post-close, but still, like everybody thought it was important that we would have our own counsel down there. But I was meeting with Facebook's counsel and I go into the building. It was a big high rise. And I go to the to the receptionist and I'm like, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm here to see so-and-so with this law firm. And she's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. what company are you with? And I said, oh, I'm WhatsApp. Uh, what's that? And she's like, and she's, you know, I'm, so, I don't know, I don't know any Portuguese, but she, her English is pretty good. And she's like, no, 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 no. What company are you at? It's like, WhatsApp. And she's like, one more time, what come? And so finally, I take out my business card and I hand it to her and say, WhatsApp. And, like, you would have thought that, like, Mick Jagger or somebody, Beyonce walked in. She, like, she stares at me and, like, wide eyes. She's, like, I was clear, like, this, like, I was a rock star. It's, like, no, no, I'm just a lawyer. It's not a big right. deal, you know? But it was, like, it was at that point. And, like, then you, all of a sudden, you're, like, you're looking around Brazil. And it was, like, you know, WhatsApp is everywhere, like, in terms of it's on ads. Like, WhatsApp, you know, and it was a verb there. It was, you know, it was, it was pervasive. Um, And Brazil was... One of our one of our largest installed user bases, and probably the most engaged. If you look at like how many minutes people were on WhatsApp, so I was doing a lot of meetings, trying to say, you know, you no, know, we're here, we 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 want to talk with you, and we want to engage, and we want to be as helpful as we can. But they they're like, well, we you know, you get questions like, we want the content of the messages so that we can track down the drug dealers, and we're like again we we don't have that actually we don't store that and then we launched end-to-end encryption which totally like inflected it even more because the concerns of law enforcement like they you know there was no con- access sure. to content anyways but now we're launching encryption and it was just like they were like people i i can't I can't tell you how many times i heard so, some version of you were doing this to thwart law enforcement. Like, no, we're, we're actually not. We're doing this to protect the privacy of users. And because there are a lot of people and there's a lot of autocracies around the world where having absolute confidence that your messages aren't being read by anybody is really important and like life and death important. So I spent a lot of time doing, I would say, public policy type work, both before we had a formal like facebook was sort of advising us and we were talking to them about public policy we eventually had a policy team that was not part of whatsapp legal but th- this was sort of in the early days so that's what i was spending a lot of my time doing it was super interesting pretty stressful at times but like learn yeah. like some some like experience like oh, well, how did i get here i have no idea
0: well, we'll come back to this when we get to uh, your your role at Twilio and and some of the sort of questions that you and the team there grappled with. In some ways, I think maybe you know maybe characterize time at WhatsApp as best of times in that sense. In some ways, worst of times in terms of the workload and burnout. And I think you're pretty open about this. Take us through, you know, what was happening on kind of like the management side of the job and, you know, what was going on and how ultimately you decided to take a step back and take a sabbatical.
1: Yeah. So I was there for three and a half years. I would say the first two and a half years were pretty, pretty like awesome, like career defining, fascinating stuff. I testified before Brazilian Congress, like weird well, again, That's how did I get here? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think my mom actually watched it. It was all in Portuguese. I had like a <laughs> earbud translating in my ear, but like you could actually watch it online. It was sort of crazy. The last year was rough. So it was probably around August of 2016. We are now, at some point in this process, around that same time, we moved on to Facebook's campus. We had been on our own campus in Mountain View. Now we're dropped on the Menlo Park campus, which was its own sort of thing because we had our, like Facebook and WhatsApp, I would tell people they're, they're, they're very similar in their mission. They want to connect the world. Facebook does it through social networking. WhatsApp did mm-hmm. it through private secure messaging. It's roughly extroverts and introverts. WhatsApp was a very <laughs> introverted, quiet culture. Facebook is not. That's and really so it was a bit of oil and water dropping us onto campus. So that was sort of in the atmosphere. More substantively, we had announced in around august uh, you know changes to our privacy policy which were gonna which was going going to allow some limited data sharing not message content because again we didn't have that but metadata back with facebook the parent company and all hell broke loose regulators around the world got pretty upset particularly in europe and also south america and other places Um, so all of a sudden we're in the middle of informal and formal inquiries all over the place and my team there was some facebook folks involved facebook legal folks involved and whatsapp legal folks involved because it was both of us were were sort of implicated uh obviously it was a data sharing and so my team at that i was leading the team that was sort of doing like law enforcement product privacy and i forget the team was not huge we were like i don't know four or five people and so here we are we are like writing briefs left and right and i will say it was rough it was rough procedurally like the process of generating those and like the rev- amount of reviews it had to go through and here i was like again i'm a startup lawyer and i'm not into process and we're in a, like a yeah. very heavy process <laughs> and then the other thing that's going on probably more importantly is, is like i am not being an effective leader for my team and what i mean by that is is that like very, it was very focused on getting the work done and less focused on sort of building. It was a nascent team, like people, like it was all folks who had been there for, you know, a year or two at most, in some cases less. Yeah, I was very focused on getting the work done and less focused on sort of building the relationships and, I, I, and, and sort of really getting to know. The folks on the team what they needed what they wanted to work on and and as a, as a result i was not an effective leader so much so that in it, early 2017 probably six months after this happens some somewhere in that range and made the decision to ha- transition me back into a role an individual contributor role um where i was you know still working on Interesting stuff to me, like law, more, more on the law enforcement stuff, engaging with regulators on like right. law enforcement, trust and safety types issue type issues, which I care deeply about. And then also thinking more about how to integrate law enforcement um, processes with Facebook and and and, and things are, and, and also how to evolve our law enforcement posture, I would say. That stuff was interesting, but I very much felt sidelined i basically didn't take the transition well and continued to sort of i would say spiral down the hill so much so that you know sort of by to, i'm struggling as an individual contributor having performance issues for the first time in my life my in my work life first time i've ever had any performance issues and sort of got to the point where like i was really stressed out not sleeping at night not succeeding in my job, not doing my job really had become toxic. Uh, you know, I was like looking for anybody to blame. And I think I was, I I don't know for sure, but my guess is I was probably weeks or maybe a month or two away from getting fired. And I was like, you know what? I I, I can't deal with this anymore. And decided to leave a hard decision because I was leaving fairly significant amount of money on the table, Yeah, but I was just, I was really unhappy. And I felt like it, like it was a It was a question of not if I was going to leave, but when and on what terms. And like I really didn't want to be walked out the door. Like I, I was just like I just didn't want that. And so I decided to leave. I was in a fortunate position where I was like I could leave without having something lined up. And then what I, I said to myself, okay, I'm going to take three to six months off. If it becomes a year, so be it. I don't even know if I still want to be a lawyer. And so that was sort of like. A, I realized I kind of threw up on the screen there a little bit, but, uh, happy to sort of go Thank down further on any of
0: that. Part. Yeah.
1: <laughs> In January, 2018, I sort of, I said, decided, okay, I still want to be a lawyer, but I want to go be the first lawyer someplace. I don't want to, I, I want to go build something, build a legal function from scratch. I don't want to go someplace that's had a lawyer before. I want to go where it's a completely blank slate. And so I reached out to Craig Schmitz. He was our outside counsel at Evernote. He was a corporate startup attorney at Goodwin. And I said, Hey, Craig, I'm sorry, I decided to still want to be a lawyer. Would love to grab lunch and like, you know, get your sense of what's out there. And he's, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's grab lunch. In the meantime, you should look at segment. And I said, Oh, what the F is I have to segment? I've never heard of that. <laughs> I, like, so I looked at, I was like, Oh, it's data. No, I've got data <laughs> battle scars. I cannot do data. And he's like, no, no, you should look at them. They've been looking for Like I had a legal for a while, really good people. I I think you should check it out. And I was like, fine. And so I literally did the interviews for, I went into the process for practice. Cause I was like, part of me was like, oh, I got to figure out how I'm going to talk about the last year at, at, at WhatsApp and why I left and just sort of like the circumstances and I did it for practice. Um, I ended up really liking the people and sort of the things I was focused on were people, product, and size. Mm-hmm. I really had to like the people. I'm probably people one with a with an asterisk or one with a bullet. Product, it had I thought it would be B2C because that's where I'd spent most of my career. But I realized during the process it was more about does the product resonate with me? Because I've worked on B2C and mm-hmm. B2B products that don't resonate with me. And this one this pro- product has to resonate with me. And then size, like I figured it would be like hundred people, 150 segment was a little bigger, but that was really proxy for first lawyer. And so I ended up ultimately getting really excited about it and then took the job. A couple of things happened before I accepted the job. First thing that happened was Peter, the CEO of Segnet says to me, hey, I want you to talk to our head of recruiting. And I'm like, I'm in no rush. I'll talk to whoever. He's like, so I get on the phone with this woman, Emily, who's now a good friend of mine. And she's like, hey we're really excited about, about you. Um, would love, we think you would do awesome here. We haven't made you an offer yet. And the reason for that is, is we feel like there's something holding you back. Do we have that right? And I'm like, this is not a conversation I've ever had before in this context at all, or even close to it. I'm like, okay, let's have this conversation. So I said to her, I said, okay, like I think the company's great. The people are awesome. You've got this job scoped just right. It's a head of legal, not a GC. I don't I, I don't care about the title. I really didn't because I viewed it that would probably be my last legal job. And I like, I don't care whether the title legal, like the comp was more important to me. I was selfish that way. Like, <laughs> let's get the comp right. The title is what it is, whatever. Yeah. I said, you got it scoped right, all that. Here's the issue. It seems like what you really want is someone to come in and negotiate a lot of contracts. And this goes back to what I said before. Like, I don't really enjoy doing that and I'm not very good at it. And so if that's what you want, I'm probably not the right person. And she's like, yeah, got it. That's not what we want. Like, yes, you're going to come in and the first six months, you are probably going to be involved negotiating a lot of contracts because that's how you're going to get to know the business. But within six months, we expect you to be out of that day to day, probably have added, probably added somebody else to the team. And you're now like moved on and focused on sort of other bigger structural issues and less of the triage. And I'm like, okay, got it. Yes, we can talk. And so from there, it kind of got very serious very quickly. I ended up taking the job. A couple of things we talked about. I talked with Peter about during, this was the other thing I mentioned. One was like, I, look, I am perfectly comfortable with this being head of legal. If you ultimately decide you need a GC, I want to be considered for it. You end up hiring somebody else. You know, it's mm-hmm. obviously your prerogative. Interesting. Understand. I will probably leave if that happens. Not, and I didn't say it in a threatening way. I was just like, I just yeah. want to be on the same page. Like, you know, I I want to be, I want to be in charge of the legal team. That's what I want. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, got it. The, we'll let's talk about like what the path to GC looks like. I was like, Yeah, that's great. So we had open conversations kind of all throughout until I ultimately got promoted to be GC. The other thing I talked with him about was, Peter, look, I. I had struggles in leadership when I was at WhatsApp. Like I really, I, I, I'm sure I will make mistakes at Segment. I need them to be different mistakes. I feel like there's stuff I need to work through and 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 actions I need to take to ensure that I don't repeat the mistakes. I would love to work with an exec coach. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Go find one that that's good with lawyers. We'll absolutely pay for it. I've worked with four coaches myself. And so uh, when I took the job at Segment, it was, so, it was a few months down the road because I was like, I got to triage first. But like the back half, so I joined in March of 2018. I think like I ended up September, October was when I was able, I I had hired somebody at that point and I was able, okay, now I need to work with an exec coach. And so that, that is one of the things that I did pretty early on.
0: How'd you find an exec coach? I just want to ask that because I I hear that question. uh, I get that question quite a bit from folks and they don't always know where to turn or uh, whether or not the one that they're reaching out to is the right one for them.
1: I have thoughts on that. And it's actually, some stuff I'm working on. And we can talk about that later around. Like, I'm doing some exec coaching stuff, like, like getting my own coaching certification, working uh-huh. with some folks at Berkeley. We can talk about that separately. I do think it's hard to find, like, the coach that I worked with, I got, we didn't have great rapport. I got a lot out of it, but it was like, it's not somebody I would go work with again. Like I, I did get, yeah. I, I, it allowed me to sort of, I really sort of process what had happened at WhatsApp and sort of how I was going and de- really develop some principles around how I was going to approach leadership at Segment as we were building the legal team. So I got a lot out of it, but it was not somebody who I was like, oh, this is like my lifelong, you know, guru.
0: Back to Segment. I think as many people know, Segment was acquired by Twilio in, in a pretty blockbuster transaction you helped make that possible what I'm really curious about is is less for us to have a conversation about the acquisition although another time folks should ask Mark for his his thoughts on that and more sort of what happened afterwards and how you know unlike a lot of GCS who maybe are the GC at the acquired rather than the acquirer you didn't take a step back and, and step away you carved out a new role for yourself as their VP of ethical use. Super interesting yeah. title. Tell us a little bit about the timeline there. And then I've got a few other questions about some of the challenges you dealt with as their ethical use lead. So the acquisition
1: closed in November 2020. So right before, like literally a couple days before the election, my deal was I would stick around for six months and help with the transition. During that time, I, I, I had never met Karen Smith, who was Twilio's GC at the time. She and I became friends and still are very good friends to to this day we we text and talk fairly regularly karen and i started talking about some of my whatsapp experience dealing with thorny trust and safety issues and some of my segment experience which i did dealt with like policy issues around like public policy issues around federal privacy and stuff like that and And, and so Karen was asking me like, what are you interested in? I was like, I was like, you know, sort of recounting some of the fun stuff I did at at WhatsApp, the substantive fun stuff. And she's like, that's really interesting. She's like, I've been sort of like charged with this ethical use construct that we have been, you know, I've been we've been sort of like fumbling around on here at Twilio, but it's basically the idea. So most companies, Twilio included, have acceptable, and Segment included, have, have acceptable use policies. This is how you can use our service. This is what you can do on our service. Ethical use was related, but a little different. It was more about, who our customers were and how they use our products and services, what they use it for, rather than the specifics of the data that might be going through the service. And so I started talking with Karen. She's like, is that something you'd be interested in helping me drive? And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, Like hard, but really interesting. And so we started like, well, let's, let's, let's try this out. And so starting in about December of 2020, I was still formally the GC of segment as we were integrating. And so I was spending a fair bit of time on that, but then the rest of my time I was spending like trying to help Karen and help the company. Stand up this ethical use function, which, again, is all about how do we think about who our customers are and where do we draw the lines.
0: Mm -hmm. And you brought up the interplay between sort of acceptable use policies and, and ethical use, and that figures pretty prominently in uh, Well, maybe the, one of the most prominent cases that, that you dealt with and the whole team at Twilio dealt with, which was early after the acquisition had closed, Twilio goes to Parler, the right wing social media site app, and tells them that they're in violation of Twilio's acceptable use policy. Take us through, and and as a result, they're at risk of or are going to have access to Twilio services cut off. Take us take us back to that moment in time and how you were seeing it from your perspective, and you know to the extent that you can, how that decision was 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 made.
1: Yeah, this was all pretty public. January sixth happens, and we learned as everybody learned, like just through public, you know, that parlor was a key component to the planning. We had reason to believe that parlor didn't really have much in the way of content moderation policies or practices in place. And so we we basically reached out to them, sent them an email saying, and this is all public, um, saying, hey, we don't think you have content moderation policies or procedures in place. <laughs> you have 72 hours to establish to us that we're wrong. And if you don't, we're going to terminate the service. And they came back to us very quickly and said, yeah, we thought you might do this. We've migrated to a different service. And we're like, that's great. <laughs> we're done. Awesome. So it was an interesting, it was very sort of like, this was all happening. Like, in real time, January 6th, 7th, 8. This was not weeks or months later. I think we sent the email. It wasn't six, but it was the seventh or the eighth, you know, at the latest. And so this all kind of was happening like as stuff was happening in DC. So it was it was pretty fascinating. It was hard though, right? Like, you know, do you, like your how you make these decisions and the process for doing it? Like we didn't have as even as I was stepping into the ethical use, we didn't have any of the framework that we would ultimately have. It was all, it still felt super ad hoc at that point. We had sort of guiding principles, but that was about it.
0: Talk us through the development of that framework. And I think this is really interesting because on the one hand, you want principles or you want an approach, something that you can do sort of over and over again, or to guide the internal discussion and debate. But a lot of these cases are pretty gray, not black and white. Talk us through the development of frameworks like this.
1: Yeah, uh, I actually really like the process that we used for this, and and it's not a process I came up with. I mean, the first thing I did was we we brought in outside counsel, not to show for outside counsel, but we brought in Mark Zwillinger and Jake Summer at uh, Zwillgen. and they were like, if anybody has any tech policies, on them, they are the folks. And so they, this was kind of they were excited about this too because they had done some stuff around this, but nothing like nothing like what we were about to engage in. And so we had put together a steering committee of me and Karen and one other person from legal uh, were were involved, and then several business folks. Basically, we put together this committee with the idea that we were going to distill out some principles. And so then Mark, Jake, and I put together a dozen... We gave everybody homework. We put together a, a dozen hypotheticals, each with multiple parts, to try and tease out, okay, where do folks think we should be drawing lines around? You know, like who our customers were, and the types of content, and like how what the process is going to be. And we knew that, like, the idea of these hypotheticals was not to not that everybody would have the same answers, but that sure. we would have some, like, we 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 would hopefully have some set of situations where we're like, okay, everybody agrees. This is what we would do. And some situations were on the opposite end, but there would be be this sticky gray morass in the middle that would require the hard conversations and and the hard analysis. But it was never like the thing about that. So there's this framework, which was basically, it wasn't designed to... It wasn't designed to be algorithmic in the sense that there wasn't going to be like you put in this set of factors and you the answer spits out and it's clear as day. And like it, it that was not the goal of the framework. The goal of the framework was to ensure that we were applying the same lens to these situations and we're consistently doing it. But with an with, with an acknowledgement that it was each case was going to be really gray and it was going to be close calls and people might not all come out the same way, even even if they were applying the same framework. If that makes uh-huh.
0: sense, it does. It's really interesting, impactful work. And ultimately, you decided to step away from it and move into something that's totally different and doesn 't require a law degree, and we're going to talk in just a minute about maybe demystifying a little bit of the executive recruiter role and how folks can work with them. Mark has some tips there, but tell us about that decision to to try something new. Was it scary? I mean it's almost changing your identity a little bit it wasn't
1: scary I, I, so the what the thought process on it was so I, I you know was in this ethical use role for a better part of the year it was intellectual intellectually interesting. Mm -hmm. But I found myself not super engaged with it. And I haven't actually ever really sort of diagnosed that except to say that it felt tangential. And as the GC of a startup, I was used to being in the middle of a lot of stuff. And this just felt like okay, I'm doing this kind of like cute little side project over here, which, and then that was just, it felt tangential.
0: Karen had
1: announced earlier in the year that she was going to be leaving Twilio. And so I'm starting to think about, okay, do I want to stick in this role that I'm not super engaged in and get to know and work with a new general counsel that didn't feel super exciting to me. And so I started to think about what I wanted to do next. And one of the things that I'd gotten out of the, from working with the executive coach was that I really enjoyed working with folks on career stuff and helping them think about what they want to do with their careers. And so I started thinking about like, Oh, like exact search could be really interesting. I did, by the way, think about, well, would I want to go be a GC again? Sure. And I was like, I don't know. The segment ride was pretty good one. Like that's a good one to go out on number one. And number two, the notion of being a GC in a fully remote environment really didn't excite me. I like being in the office. Like I'm like, if I was a GC, I'd be perfectly comfortable with folks not being like wanting to be fully remote. Perfectly comfortable supportive of that. But for me personally, like I want to be in the office like two, three, four days a week. And because that's where I would have some of the most interesting conversations.
0: Tell us a bit more about what it entails. And I guess what I'm really looking for almost is like demystify it a little bit for us. I think that a lot of folks who are either trying to get their first executive role or have had a number and maybe worked with executors in the past they still don't have the whole puzzle put together on on how to, you know, make that relationship the most effective that it can be. Talk us through any tips you have for folks who are job seeking.
1: Yeah, so exec search and legal search in general. Like we are retained search folks. And not every not every exec search or not every legal search does it this way, but most do. We are retained search. In other words, we are brought on by tech companies and other companies as an extension of them and so we do searches on their behalf what that means is that you talk to five different exec recruiters who are doing legal searches you should get five different non overlapping sets of opportunities that they are each working on so that my first uh-huh. piece of advice is, is don't like you should not be marrying To one exec recruiter, you should be talking to a bunch of (laughs) folks because you want to be on as many radars as possible is one thing. I mean, the other, and so kind of related to that, I get some confusion around this is, is that folks are like, you know, they'll reach out to me. You know, can you help me find a job? I was like, well, that's not what we do. Like, and and the shorthand we, the shorthand we use is, is like, we find people for jobs, not jobs for people. Um, right. now there are headhunters out there who will s- go shop your resume. That's just not what we do. And that's not what most of the sort of well-known exec and legal recruiting firms do. They are like, they are retained and, and do it on their own. There are some who do contingent searches and and where they're, they don't have an exclusive on it. And so there is a bit of a range of things. I'm not, I, I don't mean to oversimplify things. I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying things too much, but I think just recognizing that um, being on the radar of as many folks as possible is a good idea. I think the other thing that I would say right now is, is like, you know, it's still, it's a tough market out there um, for in tech, legal lawyers in tech as well. It remains a tough market. It's gotten better, but a lot of companies are going on their own right now when they're hiring Especially for like non GC roles, but even GC roles, they're going out on their right. own and and not engaging an exec search firm because they're like, oh, I've got all these recruiters sitting around not doing anything. Like, why would I go pay an external firm a commission when I've got salaried folks here who are under underemployed right now? And so let's put them to work. So doesn't mean you shouldn't be talking to exec recruiters, but just understand that there are jobs being filled without any involvement of exec recruiters.
0: Sure. As we start to wrap up a couple of shorter, hopefully easier questions for you. Any book that you'd recommend folks read, uh, whether about career or, or otherwise?
1: It's a great question. I meant to bring this up before, but I'm not big on self-help book. But <laughs> when I'm not, I really am not. Uh, but when I, during the sort of post WhatsApp sabbatical I was down at a program at Stanford where I did my undergrad and the president of the university was talking about like, oh, the most popular class with undergrads these days is a class taught out of our design school. It's called designing your life.
0: Oh, I've heard of this.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. It's basically like the, the premise of it is, is like everybody tells you to follow your passion But unless you're like an artist or an athlete or something like that, it's really hard, particularly for lawyers, to actualize. So this comes at it from a different way, which a different place, which is let's let's help you figure out what your life, what you want your life to look like. How does work fit in? How does family, travel, hobbies, nonprofit, philanthropic, community, like how does it all fit together? And so it's an active read. It's an easy read. You can take a class on designing your life. That the. So these are two design school professors at Stanford who wrote this book and teach this class. Like I never took the class. The book is like fifteen bucks on you know Amazon or whatever. <laughs> you know I highly recommend it. I've sent a lot of people to it. I do think particularly as you're trying to figure out like what do you want to be doing, I, I found it to be a very useful read.
0: Maybe a little bit in the same vein, a last question for you, which is if you can go back to before you went in-house, uh, maybe even before you joined the firm or, or very early on, any advice that you'd have for your younger self?
1: I don't know if it's advice per se, but I wish I'd been better prepared for the challenges that I saw at WhatsApp. Like in terms of like the the challenges, like challenges with getting my job done and doing my job. I wish I had known that I was that, that those were going to happen and that I would get through it that I wouldn't actually have end up spending a fair bit of time like thereafter like really sort of questioning whether I was a good lawyer or not like all of that like that sort of imposter syndrome and and uh I just wish I had known that like that there was that there was going to be a path forward I, I like I that, that is so unrealistic because people will tell you that until you've experienced it, you really can't anticipate what it's going to be like.
0: Sure. Well, I hope that some of the folks who are listening to this, maybe if they're at a moment like that in their careers, they can learn from your experience and know that it is possible to come out the other side and actually have uh, an even better experience or more career-defining experience afterwards. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on The Abstract. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with folks?
1: No, just uh, thank you, Tyler, and thank you, uh, SpotRat, for 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 doing this. I do think it's 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 a very high value thing, and I think it allows, like, uh, it, it gives folks exposure. Fo- folks who are listening and watching, it gives them exposure to folks who have seen other things in in the legal profession, and so I think it's a it's a great service. So thank you.
0: It's uh, the best part of my job. The thing that I like the most. Thanks to all of our listeners too for listening to this episode of The Abstract. Hope to see you next time. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or our guest, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See you all next week.